Hey everybody, welcome to the first full form episode of Spotlight with Sandalina. I'm your talk show host, Sandalina Sitar, and today we have a very special guest with us to start off the show. We have Omika Jakaria, who is a South Asian influencer as one third of the Jakaria sisters, a yoga and meditation teacher, a holistic wellness coach, and a full-time management consultant. Before I dive into Omika's journey, I think it's important to take a step back and remind ourselves what this show is about, and feel free to check out the prior introductory episode as well. But the premise of this show is to do a vulnerable deep dive into the journeys of South Asians and or Muslims in the creator space. The genesis of this show came from my own self-discovery journey when I moved to New York City last year and found myself in the midst of South Asian creators and realized that this ecosystem opened my mind to the world of possibilities. And I realized that it's possible to be successful while pursuing a more creative journey that's maybe different than the traditional paths that we were taught growing up. So diving right in, today, as I mentioned, we have Omika. So I met Omika within my first few weeks of moving to New York City. We were at a mutual friends event and we crossed paths. And it was actually really interesting because before the event, um, I was helping set up and one of the guys asked me if I watched TikTok, to which I said, yeah, of course. Um, he asked if I knew who the Jakarta sisters were and I said, yeah. He mentioned that one of them might be coming and I think that was a really cool moment for me because it was my first time seeing somebody that I'd seen on screen at back home and seeing the behind the scenes of who they are and just having that awareness level of, of somebody before meeting them was I think new for me. What surprised me even more about Omika wasn't just that, it was the fact that we clicked instantaneously and to this day I look back at that as one of my strongest friendship sparks when I first moved to the city that still feels inexplicable when describing. We clicked instantly, shared an Uber back home to Hell's Kitchen Upper West Side right after and we've maintained in close contact ever since. So it's been really exciting. I'm really happy to have you on. I know I've ranted to you multiple times over the past year now about how badly I want to start a show like this. So thank you so much for being my very first guest. Oh my God, thank you for having me. I've been so excited to hear that you're finally doing this because I know that you've wanted to for so long and I just feel like this is what you're meant to be doing. So it is just, it's such a joy to be here and to be a part of this with you. Thank you. I really appreciate Aww. that so much. All right. Okay. So let's jump in. So the world knows you as Omika Jakaria, one through the Jakaria sisters, but I want to know who you are outside of all that. So let's go to the very beginning, the early days. Tell me a little bit about where you're born and raised. Yeah. So I was born and raised in Brooklyn, um, in New York City. So I'm New York City born and bred. My parents moved to Brooklyn in the 1980s from India. I'm the oldest of three, so I was sort of the, the first child to experience everything with them. I have two younger sisters, of course, um, but really grew up in, deep in Brooklyn, so all the way far south in Coney Island, which is, you know, pretty much out of the way. There weren't a lot of um, Indians growing up there when we were, when we were growing up. It's um, a big immigrant community, but uh, there wasn't a lot of Indian or any really South Asian presence at the time that we were growing up there. Um, so it was uh, a really different experience. We had a lot of um, Russian immigrants, Italian immigrants, wow. people from all over. So uh, actually growing up, I learned how to speak Russian before I learned English, no way. which was really crazy. Yeah. Cause uh, my parents, when they were looking for a babysitter for me, they wanted an, an Indian nanny and they couldn't find one because there's weren't any. And our entire building was filled with um, just older, older Russian people. And so my babysitter uh, was my babushka and she wow. was uh, <laughs> who I went to since I was, I think three or six months old. And I um, grew up with her basically learning Russian, being immersed in that culture. And then also of course at home, being immersed in Indian and Gujarati culture. So I was kind of this uh, melting pot of different worlds. <laughs> and then I went to school when I was three, I started going to pre-K and that's when I learned English. So um, grew up 
trilingual and, and just in between a lot of different worlds. Um, and I really credit that to growing up in New York City, specifically in yeah. Brooklyn, which is really cool. And, and I love that. And I want to touch on that later, your exploration of world travel and, and the melting pot of different cultures. I think that rings true to who you are today. So we'll, we'll come back to that. But before we do, tell me a little bit more about your parents. What, what are they like? What is your relationship with each of them individually? And what's been their parenting philosophy raising you? Yeah, gosh. Um, they. I'm really close to my parents. Um, my dad was always working growing up. So he, I know, I, I saw him working really hard. He used to work in various labs and then he quit that when I was around three years old and he started to, he bought his own businesses and uh, really works in that space similar to a lot of other Gujarati American small business owners. So um, he works pretty much seven days a week. He has been for the past pretty much my whole life. And so I just think of him as a really hard worker who gives everything to our family and has just sacrificed so much, works long hours, never complains, um, just because he really wants to live his own life and, and have those businesses. Uh, my mom was working when I was younger, uh, and then when she had my second, my, or my third sister, I guess, so I have two sisters, uh, when Ashika was born, who's my youngest sister, my mom left her job and stayed at home with us for 15 years until Ashika went back to, uh, or when Ashika went to high school, and then my mom went back to work. So my mom and I um, are really close because she was a stay-at-home mom for all that time, so was deeply involved in my life, especially me being the oldest. Um, she was always kind of known as the cool mom because she was very involved, very young, always wanted to be you know, trendy and hang out with all of our friends uh, and just wanted us to, uh, would take us to dance classes and beauty pageants and all of our extracurricular activities. She was a PTA mom, so my mom has just been very involved in our lives forever. Um, even now when my friends meet her, she's just so, uh, you know, people think of her as like the fun, trendy mom. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm close to them. I definitely have more of an emotional connection to my mom because I spent all that time with her growing up. Um, and yeah, I mean, my relationship with both of them has evolved over time as well. I think that, uh, you know, there are still a lot of bumps in the road with of all course. of that, especially yeah. being the oldest, being the one to go through everything first. <laughs> um, but I think over time I've come to really appreciate my relationship with them because I recognize that, you know, if and when I choose to have a family, a lot of the values that I bring to that family are going to be informed by how my parents raise me as much as I like being rebellious and saying, <laughs> Hey, I don't want to, you know, do everything that they did or I have a different way of thinking. I think over the past couple of years, I've been really working on healing some of those issues or, uh, or kind of feelings of resentment and bitterness that, you know, would come up when I was trying to do things differently. Of course, of course. And I think it's so interesting that you've taken such a healthy kind of introspective approach when you think back to your upbringing and your past. And I think it's, I can tell you've done a lot of the internal work to understand what parts of your childhood influenced who you are today. And I think that's so incredible and, and should be encouraged. Absolutely. Going a little bit more into your upbringing as well. What was your exposure to wealth growing up? What was your socioeconomic status? And I want to preface this. The reason I ask this is because I think it's important to understand people's relationship with money growing up, to understand it today, especially in the sphere of influencing and content creation. So, yeah, I think that's a great question and something that I think about so much. I think money plays a huge role in everybody's lives and we just don't talk about it enough, whether that's a social taboo or a cultural taboo. Yeah. It's such a thing that I think about. And you're right, especially when you see people online creating in different ways, you know, you kind of wonder, or people make a lot of assumptions, right? They're right. like, oh, well, you must come from a certain background or your parents must have given you this or you must come from wealth or, you know, things like that. And it's so funny because, um, you know, and I, and I really tried to, to heal my relationship with money and think about my financial wellness because, it's funny when we went when my sisters and I went viral on TikTok, 
we were staying at my parents' house, who my parents moved to Westchester, which is up, which is a little bit outside of the city, not quite upstate, but you know, it's a suburb essentially outside of New York. They moved there about six years ago, and the house that they live in now is not the house that we grew up in. We grew up in an apartment, a two-bedroom apartment deep in Brooklyn, like wow. I said, basically close to Coney Island, Brighton Beach. And people don't see that side of it, right? So they see our videos in our parents' backyard. They're like, oh, you must live in this very affluent neighborhood in Westchester or in some suburb, and you must have a, a specific type of lifestyle or specific types of means. And, and of course, I appreciate that, and I'm so proud of how far my parents have come, but that is not where I grew up. I grew up... Yeah in that very immigrant heavy community in that two bedroom apartment with you know with my five family members all, all together and that's a side of the story that you know people don't really hear and it's the first time i ever had any exposure to wealth i would say is when i went to college when i went to georgetown in dc where i met people who had gone to private school and who had gone to boarding school and had come from legacy families who had just such a different experience with yeah. money and <laughs> with access and status that i never knew about i mean i grew up going to New York City public schools, which were amazing. I would not trade that for a thing. They were, like, I learned everything yeah. that I needed to know growing up as a kid <laughs> in the city. Um, but no, I never really thought about, about wealth. I didn't even have a concept of what that looks like until I went to yeah. college. Um, and then since then, of course, you know, my world has opened up so much, but yeah, not, it wasn't, it wasn't something that I really knew about when I was younger. And I think that's really interesting because I think one thing on the West Coast that people don't see, especially in the Bay Area, where I'm originally from, is we see a lot of the immigrant rags to riches story. But what people don't realize is on the East Coast, there's a whole different type of wealth. And I think growing up in and around that, but not having that can be a very interesting experience because we see a lot of that kind of old money around you. As you mentioned, kind of legacy kids in college, I mean, that's, they have a completely different upbringing. And, and personally, I feel encountering those individuals in New York City, I, I feel like it's a different breed of species. I don't know how to relate or connect sometimes because I'm like, we just grew up so vastly differently. And I'm not saying better or worse, but I'm just saying different. Access to different resources and privilege. But one thing, when you talk about your mom being a stay-at-home mom, you say it with such pride. You're so proud of it. And I, and I love that because I think there is a narrative in the modern day that if you're a stay-at-home mom, you're not really contributing much. And, and I, re I really don't like that. And I really want to dispel that notion. I think I grew up with a stay-at-home mom, and I cherish that so much. It's near and dear to my heart, and part of who I am today, I think having, of course, I think women should have the choice. Like, let's start there first and foremost. But I think if women opt to choose to stay at home, I think it should be celebrated instead of frowned upon. I think it's had a positive impact, I, I think you would say, in, in your upbringing and childhood. I think that's a really beautiful message. So Absolutely, yeah. No, I totally agree with that. I think, um, yeah, I wouldn't be the person I am today if I didn't have her so involved in my life, you know, of yeah. course there are ups and downs to that. And I think, you know, it is important to see different types of women, to see the different types of possibilities yeah. that are out there. But I mean, absolutely. I think it's been a huge net positive for my sisters and me. That's incredible. So speaking of you and your sisters, I want to hear a little bit more about your dynamics and your relationships. You're the eldest and I have an eldest sister know exactly what that entails. Uh, but tell me a little bit, tell me about your other two sisters. How would you assign different characteristics and traits between the three of you? Oh man, uh, so I definitely am an oldest child. I, I think anyone who knows me <laughs> would pick up on that. Yeah. And I am also, my sisters are only a year and a half apart from each other. So okay. I am uh, basically five and six years older so than So what are your so ages right now, just to set the time? So I'm 29. Okay. As of, as of filming this. Yeah. Um, my uh, Rishika is 25 okay. and Ashika just turned 24. Okay. Um, yeah, so Rishika is, uh, yeah, quintessential middle child, just very, um, very diplomatic, always, you know, <laughs> wants everyone to be happy, is often Aww. caught in the middle of arguments, and uh, she's actually a lawyer now, she just um, 
graduated from law school and passed the bar and stuff. So I think it's a great career for her because she really does always try to stand up for what's right and always understands all sides of, of any issue. Um, and she's just very, has a ton of emotional depth and, and just understands people really well, which I admire. Um, Ashiga is, is amazing. She is definitely uh, very spunky and fun. <laughs> takes on a lot of those younger child characteristics, but she's also incredibly smart. She's an engineer and an amazing dancer too. Um, it has just a really unique way of thinking about the world. It's very systematic, very operationally driven, and just is really sharp. Um, yeah. And I and I really uh, admire both of them for many of their positive characteristics. I like that. Painted a very clear picture really? of, of the three of you, and I really like it. Helps tell the story for for us at home just yeah. to see who you are outside of the screen because mm -hmm. we see these beautiful three sisters dancing and wearing these amazing clothes and, and doing the thing but it's mm -hmm. nice to understand that you know we're maybe more alike than different mm -hmm. than the, with the people that we see on screen I mean I think everybody back home can relate but these are the dynamics there's the older sister there's like the little sister there's, there's the <laughs> diplomatic middle sister I want to get a little bit more into you as a child and, and growing up in your sort of personal evolution mm -hmm. so what were your dreams as a kid Oh man, um, I so I grew up dancing, and we all learned Russian classical ballet growing up. So that wow. was our main dance form that we learned since we were all two or three years old. And we also grew up uh, doing a lot of beauty pageants, which you know is its own a whole can of worms yeah. there. But uh, <laughs> so actually, what I wanted to be, I remember there was some news article that somebody wrote about our dance school uh, when I was eight, and they I was one of the people that they quoted. I was I mean I was a child. And they said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be, I said I wanted to be a model, an actress, and a ballerina. Wow. So that is what I wanted to be when I was eight. <laughs> that is on the record. Um, because that's what I was exposed to. Uh, and then as I got older, I remember in high school, I was I started to get more interested in politics and international affairs, which is what right. I ended up going to college to study. Uh, so in high school, I would have said that I wanted to be either a lawyer or uh, or be a diplomat of some sort, maybe right. be the Secretary of State. That is what nice. I wanted to be. Um, so yeah, something more in the in the political sphere when I was in high school. I like that from a young age, you kind of knew that you liked the entertainment space a little bit, and you were able to kind of balance that, I think, as a, as a yeah. theme throughout your life, and I think that's really interesting. I want to talk a little bit more about your time in the beauty pageant world. So tell me, how was that? What were your kind of key learnings and observations mm -hmm. through that phase of your life? Yeah, I mean, it was such a formative part of our childhoods for, for my sisters and me. I started, I did my first pageant when I was five, so it was very, wow. yeah, Kitty Beauty pageants. <laughs> my sisters <laughs> went to them pretty much since they were born. I think Rishika probably did it, her first one when she was like six months old. I remember my mom carrying her on the stage, and yeah, they, they literally have baby pageants. <laughs> oh um, it's absurd, but uh, <laughs> gosh. Um, it was great. I mean, I think I learned a lot in terms of, presence and poise and you know presenting yourself and walking well yeah. and talking well right I think that's all those are all great skills to carry forward I think there are many downsides of course in terms of you know just how you feel about yourself especially sure. as a young girl when you're so impressionable and just thinking about you know people commenting on not only what you're wearing but how you look and your features and your hair and it's like, oh you have yeah. this kind of face you have that kind of face and your smile looks like this and you know you need to fix this about yourself so it really um, also created a lot of feelings of inadequacy I think Sure. Um, in terms of, you know, how I felt I looked or how I was perceived. And I think there were a lot of unhealthy things around that, of course. So I think, you know, there is a balanced perspective. I think my mom would be very upset if I said it was all negative because she's still a huge, you know, a huge <laughs> proponent of it. But yeah. I'm like, okay, mom, like, 
you know, there are a lot of downsides and it's not good for self-esteem and self-worth. And I often sure. think, I'm like, if I have a daughter, um, would I have her do that? Maybe, maybe not. I think maybe okay. like sports would be better because I think that, you know, teaches you more about teamwork and about different types of abilities. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that was, that was our experience with it. It was, it was a lot of ups and downs. Wow. And it sounds like your parents, I think they, they knew that they wanted you to kind of perform and, and, and dance and walk on stage. So where does that come from? I, I think that's so intriguing because I grew up in from a Muslim background mm-hmm. and it's usually the total opposite for us. It's like, you know, like keep your kids away from the limelight. Yeah. I, I don't think either is better or worse. It's just mm-hmm. different. So I'm curious, kind of where, where does that stem from? I think my dad is, is not... Uh, a big proponent of that actually I think for okay. him he always he always took a backseat he would sort of be like well just go study or focus on school um I don't know I think for my mom it could be a lot of her own dreams that went unfulfilled you know she got married when she was 21 and then moved oh, to wow. America okay. uh she never got the opportunity to do a lot of those things my mom was also pretty tall compared to a lot of other Gujarat oh, women so she's okay. I mean she's 5'8 which in America is not that tall but in our community, it is kind of that tall, is, yeah. and so she was actually made to feel pretty ashamed when she was younger for being too tall, for Aww. being, you know, she would be told, hey, you're not going to find a husband because you are too tall, and she was kind of, felt like an ugly duckling almost, and like, she's beautiful, she's tall, she's beautiful, and yeah. um, she was made to feel a certain way about that, so I think when she moved here, and then she had three girls, she was like, oh my gosh, I want to have you do all of these things, and we're also, you know, we're around her height, so she's like, oh my god, you should, you know, Aww. try modeling and try doing this, and put yourself out there, so I think a lot of it was stuff that she wanted to do that she wasn't yeah. allowed to when she was younger, so yeah, a lot of, you know, dreams being unfulfilled. Let's go a little bit more into the academic journey. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned in high school that you started becoming a little bit more interested in politics, so who were you in high school? Were you the speech and debate kid? Were you the popular kid? Were you the shy mm-hmm. kid? Like, who were you, and how did you stumble upon your interest in politics? So uh, I went to I went to Stuyvesant High School, which is one of the um, public competitive math and science schools in New York. So it's one of the specialized high schools that you have to take a test to get into. Oh wow! So it's funny because I was talking about this with somebody the other day, and I was like, the popular kids in my school were probably not the popular kids at like a normal <laughs> high school, right? So like I don't know what really made people popular at my school. I'm not I'm not quite sure. It's kind of weird now that I think about it. Um, but it was it was a huge school in the in downtown Manhattan in Tribeca. Um, it was 800 people per class, very academically driven. Again, it was, we were actually looking at 70% Asian. So it's very, you know, just very heavily. And a lot of, a lot of first gen, a lot of speaking, speaking about socioeconomic status again, not a lot of, it's not a lot of wealth. It's actually people who were on free or reduced lunch about half of the school. Um, so again, it's a lot of people with parents pushing them to get into the best colleges. Like since you step foot freshman year into the school, you're thinking about what college you're going to get into. You're constantly talking about grades. It was very, very hyper competitive. And, you know, now people talk about mental health and it's more normalized in this generation. But yeah. in my time, it was not. For me, I joined speech and debate when I was oh a freshman. <laughs> I love that. And totally that was a huge part of my life um, for, throughout high school. It was actually really hard to let go of that when I went to college. Um, and I stayed involved because then my sister ended up being on the team when she went to my school. And I would go to tournaments with her when I was in college, too, to judge and really be involved in it. I went to speech and debate camp for three summers in high school. I coached at speech and debate camp. Like, it was a huge, huge part of my life. And I loved it because it really brought me to understand my own voice, to learn about self-expression. Yeah. Uh, it was truly life-changing, and, and that was amazing. And so, yeah, I learned about, yeah, really speaking up for things that matter to me um, and got more involved in that. Now, my school is math and science focused, but 
I think what happened there was I think I'm, you know, fine at math and science, but because everybody there was so good at it, I actually felt very swallowed up by that. Uh, and I didn't like it anymore. So I got really interested then in English and in foreign languages and in history and social sciences because I felt like that was actually more accessible to me in that environment where everybody was just amazing at math yeah. and science. So I, I didn't feel like I could stand out. So that's where I got more into into the social sciences, actually, and I felt like I could, um, I just liked the liberal arts a little bit more because of that, yeah. and that's why I ended up studying that in college, too. So oddly enough, between downtown Tribeca and Cupertino, California, where I grew up, <laughs> I think there were actually a lot of similarities yeah. in, in kind of the high school environment. So just mm -hmm. for context, ours was also very minority-driven, mm -hmm. South and East Asian primarily throughout the school. And also very competitive. And it, it's funny because then you said the thing about the popular kids. I was like, yeah, well, the popular <laughs> kids in our school, they weren't like super, you know, the super hot stereotypical. Mm -hmm. Also, another point that I think is interesting to bring up is the whole point about math and science and how you maybe stepped a little bit away from that because about, you know, the way you felt relative to your peers. I think it's a very common experience um, for people that go to competitive high schools. And I can, I can share that as well firsthand is at my high school, everybody, you know, everybody wants to go to Stanford, Berkeley, mm -hmm. Ivy's, the, the big schools, right? And it's incredible that, you know, a lot of them can't, but, but the downside is I think you have a very distorted perspective of reality and you don't really understand how well you're actually doing because you're comparing yourself against the cream of the literal crop. Mm -hmm. So I also had similar experiences where I was like, am I, maybe I'm not that great at math. And there were, there were a few years where I actually like hated math because I, I thought it was my weakest subject. And then, you know, I, I found my, my passion for math again and pursued it a little bit more in my early, you know, first few years of college. But I think it's interesting to kind of dissect the impact of our environment in terms of our own decisions in the long run because it puts you on a trajectory. It's not just a feeling, it's it's a choice at a young age. And I think you made a great one, but I think social sciences is great, politics are great. Tell me a little bit more about college. So where did you go to school? Where was it located geographically? What did you major in? And who were you in your college? Oh man, so I went to Georgetown University in Washington, DC. I right. studied at the School of Foreign Service, so I was an international relations major there. And I loved it. I loved every moment of it. I was just in DC a couple weeks ago and being back there just brings me so much nostalgia in terms of who I was at that time and all of the opportunities that opened up. I mean, of course, the first thing we talked about was the types of people that I met, right? It was people from yes. not only all over the world, but from right. different socioeconomic statuses, from different life experiences that, you know, in New York City, I had a lot of exposure to, but this was just at a whole other level. And yeah. What I loved about Washington, D.C. is that it's a place where people are incredibly connected to what is happening in the world, yeah, into in current events and politics. I mean, everyone thinks that they are, <laughs> that they're the next president or, you know, it was funny. It was like um, the whole university knows, you know, people's political affiliations and people oh. are just so, you know, engrossed in all of those Things, and it feels very political and active and current and I just love that it was super ambitious yeah. and at the same time Georgetown also being a Jesuit school it's very much focused on social justice and community service and that was really inspiring to me just learning about all the different problems that exist in the world whether it was in DC or in other parts of the world so that was amazing and it was very common to travel to different parts of the world I spent two summers abroad I spent a summer in Poland I spent another summer in India and I was doing this volunteer teaching program, living with host families. I started my own program in India. That was really cool. And um, I didn't have like a quote unquote traditional internship at that point. I didn't really know. I wasn't like steeped in, in the business space or in more traditional internships or anything like that. Um, and in terms of my extracurriculars, as you can imagine, I, uh, <laughs> I did Model UN. I, I was um, in student government. I was the vice president of the student body my senior year. So that was a huge a huge part of my time um so that's probably my biggest probably what i was 
like known for my senior year when I was graduating. Um, and I was also involved in different cultural things. Um, there wasn't a huge South Asian community there. There was, but I don't okay. think it was as big as it might be at some other schools. So it was there. Um, I did some theater. I did, yeah, a couple other things, but I would say the main, the main places where I had my friends and things were around foreign service. I was also in a foreign service sorority. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I, I really appreciate that there is an encouragement towards traveling and, and seeing mm -hmm. the world. And I think that might have, just taking a guess here, might have informed mm -hmm. kind of your series of decisions after college too. So I, I know you pursued your MBA. Mm -hmm. I want to get there. But before we get there, walk me through the time between college and your MBA. It'd be really helpful for the audience if you could map out, you know, locations and years and, mm -hmm. and you know, just, just walk us through it. Yeah. So when I graduated from college, I, um, the first job I had was at Facebook, I guess now Meta, and I moved to Austin, Texas, which was very random, but I, so I'd been in, I'd lived in New York, I lived in DC, and I knew that I didn't want to go back to New York right after college. Actually, I okay. wanted to explore something else. So initially I wanted to go to the West Coast because I wanted to work in tech. So I was looking at different <laughs> opportunities there. And then I ended up getting this opportunity in Austin. And at that time, I mean, this was Gosh, this was eight years ago. So that time, Facebook was a very different type of company, right. and you know, it was amazing. It was still growing. It was it was big at that time, but it wasn't huge. Um, and so I moved to Austin. I didn't know anybody there except for my one friend who had gone and worked at, on the same team as me from college, okay. and um, was in this brand new city. It was amazing. It was where I where I really grew up. I didn't even know how to drive when I moved, and I was oh, moving wow. to Texas. Okay. So Texas <laughs> is where I learned how to drive. I had my first big girl apartment. I was living by myself. Um, got more really into the wellness space was having my first job I did my yoga teacher training there got more yeah. into meditation and all of that it's there's a lot of counterculture stuff in Texas so learn more about living a plant-based lifestyle and living alternatively and it was just so different from anything yeah. I'd been exposed to on the east coast and it was also a culture shock because again being coming from DC where everyone was so aware and ambitious and political Austin Texas is just so different from that it's mm -hmm. very laid back it's calm people are family oriented they're outdoorsy they're active and that is just something that I had never been exposed to before so it was <laughs> shocking to me and as a 21 22 year old I was like I don't know if I want to do this um, and I, I really loved it. I learned a lot. At the same time, I knew that I always wanted to move abroad uh, because okay. I had studied international relations. I was a Russian minor. I had done a lot of different things and just learned about different experiences. And I really wanted to spend time outside of the U.S. because I felt like it would be um, a great learning experience for me in some way. So I asked myself, um, or I talked to one of my mentors at Facebook, and she had asked me, you know, hey, where do you want to be, you know, five years from now? And mind you, this is a manager on my team, on the business analytics team that I'm working on. And I, I, me being so naive, I was like, I brought her a job posting, and it was like from the UN. And I was like, I want to work like for the UN in Tanzania or something. I don't even know. I love and she that. was just so confused. And like, I was just so, I was so, so naive because here I am telling my manager at my job that I don't want to be working there anymore. And she was, and she had come from DC actually. She had been uh, pre-military, um, worked at the White House and she was like, I'm going to give you very unsolicited advice. Like you should go do that right now. You're 22 wow. years old and you have nothing to lose if you're going to take a pay cut, if you're going to move somewhere, like you have no dependents. You know, of course, that's a hugely privileged way of looking at it. You know, like, of course, there are people sure. who have many other burdens and obligations, but I was so lucky that I was like, you know, I didn't have all those things to think about. And she was like, you should, you should go do that now. And this was just a couple months into when I started my job. And it took me pretty much a year from then to figure out how I was going to move abroad. So I started looking for different opportunities abroad. And then I ended up uh, moving to Cambodia in fall of 2016 after a year at Facebook. And I did a microfinance fellowship with this company called Kiva, 
which does microfinance work in a bunch of different countries. Nice. Um, and so I was, I just literally up and left, moved to Cambodia, spent uh, about half a year there. I was traveling around different villages, going to all these rural areas, uh, and just learning about on the ground microfinance. <laughs> like it was literally a volunteer fellowship position. It was so scary. And my parents were like, what are you doing? I mean, nobody would understand. They were just like, oh, you're like on this eat, pray, love, hippie adventure. I was like, no, I am like looking to do something different professionally. Like this is a professional path for me. And yes, it's going to be a ton of personal growth too. So I did that. And then, and then once I was there, it was crazy because I like got there and people, you know, I had so many naysayers or people who were just like, you know, you can always come back to Facebook or you can always come back to this other job and you know, it'll be fine. And then I get there and I suddenly, again, my world opens up again yeah. and I, I meet all these different people who this is their career. They're doing this for their lives and they have their whole families there. They're living abroad and you're like, oh my gosh, this possibility exists. But if I had continued to listen to people's limiting beliefs or the stories that they tell themselves, I would have never even learned about this. Never even learned that this is a possibility. So I was there. I realized that I loved it. And then I was like, okay, I want to do this full time. So then I ended up finding another job with this company called ID Insight. And uh, it was very serendipitous how I found it. But essentially, they work in eight different countries across different continents. They've grown a lot already. And they were creating a brand new operations team that they were looking to hire into. And so they were hiring in Zambia and Kenya and India. And then I ended up working for them in India, in New Delhi, for two and a half years. I was one of the founding members of their operations team, helped grow the organization, almost doubled during the time that I was there, expanded to new offices. And um, it was just like the wildest experience because it was a startup, but it was also a nonprofit. And then I also got to live in India for two and a half years. It was a whole other experience. Um, But it was just amazing. And my world was just cracked open in so many different ways. And even now, you know, even if I'm now living a more quote unquote stable life, I still look back at that version of me and that's who inspires me is like that person who kind of just up and left and just knowing that I have that resourcefulness within me to make a big move whenever I want to. And knowing that something will catch me when I take that leap, I'm not going to fall. Um, so anyway, that's a lot of, that's kind of, those were the four years between college and, and business school. (laughs) Well, I love how bold and adventurous and daring you are. I think those are common themes throughout everything that you've shared with us thus far is is that's who you are to your core. And I think there's something to be said about, and I bring this up in other episodes too, is listening to your inner voice. I think trying to get past the low cat gang gate, like what, what are people going to say? What are people going to think? And just, it's just really thinking for yourself and not letting people's limiting beliefs guide you, right? Because ultimately it is your life to live. And if you don't experience these things, somebody you know somebody else can, but it won't be you. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's 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 about the life that you want and creating it yeah. and bringing that to the present. And I, I love that you're able to do that on your own. And, and one question I want to ask, and this is coming from a place of I, I feel this way, so that's why I'm asking, <laughs> is I you know as an older sister, somebody's adventurous and bold as well. Yeah. I don't know if I could live internationally. By the way, that's <laughs> insane that you did that. That's incredible. I'm too emotional and too attached <laughs> to my family to do that. Sorry. But um, you that's. I admire that so much. I wish I could. Maybe maybe one day. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but one thing that I think about sometimes is sometimes it just feels, it's empowering, the independence, it, it's exhilarating, it's an adrenaline rush, mm-hmm. and it, there's so much self-fulfillment in there, but sometimes, I don't know if you feel this way, I get a pang of loneliness sometimes, or I feel like sometimes I have that like lone wolf syndrome, like, I don't need anyone, and then I'm like, hmm. I'm here somewhere all alone, and, and, and it's beautiful, but there's there's moments where I'm like, I wish... I had a family member to lean on, right? So, so have you experienced that as well? And what has been your relationship been like with those thoughts? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't even share about this that openly, but 
or I have not because I didn't want to, but like I, I happily will. And I will say that when I was in India uh, around my second year in India was my lowest point mentally, like ever. Okay. Yeah. It was my lowest, lowest mental health. And it was, I was in the throes of really bad depression of just very, very negative thoughts that I didn't tell anyone about besides okay. I didn't tell anybody there. I told my sister when she visited me and that was it. And then maybe I told my other sister when I moved oh back, gosh. I told my mom a couple of years later, but I didn't tell anyone because it was like so scary yeah. and I didn't even know how to seek help. I didn't know where to even start. And there was, a, there were, a, there was a confluence of things that caused that. I know a lot of it was, yeah, just being super independent and lonely in a lot of yeah. ways. Also, I was chronically stressed. I was really unhealthy in terms of, I just wasn't nourishing my body properly. There was just a lot of like chronic health things happening. Uh, there were issues with my job actually around how I was being treated in some instances, okay. uh, being at this nonprofit. And so there was just a lot of things being a woman in Delhi right. was very hard. And I felt there were moments where I was physically unsafe. Luckily I'm okay, Jeez. but okay. there were a lot of things. And now yeah. I can unpack that and say, I know where that came from. But in that moment I was deep in darkness and nobody would have known because I was, you know, on this adventure and I was doing right. this thing and building this company. And at the same time I was dancing so much. I was competing at these Asia wide salsa dance tournaments. Wow. Like I was just doing all these crazy things. I was practicing a lot of yoga and I was making all these new friends. I was traveling and it was, it was so cool. And at, at the same time, I just, I couldn't get past some of those very real mental challenges, yeah. which is what eventually did cause me to leave in 2019 when I decided to go to grad school and come back to the U S because I just felt that I needed more of that stability. And okay. so, yeah, I think it absolutely comes at a price and people don't talk about it about that enough. It's really easy to see, you know, what people post on social media yeah. and where people are, but, uh, you just never really know what's going on beyond the be beneath the surface. Again, I wouldn't trade it for a thing, but it was really scary. Yeah. Thank you for opening up about yeah. that. I think it's difficult because oftentimes we want to, and this isn't anyone's fault. It's a natural tendency. We want to, you know, portray the highlight reel. That's what mm. social media kind of has turned us into is, is this constant highlight reel. So I think I always really appreciate authenticity and vulnerability in these contexts. It's like, you know, the world saw this, but this is what I was really experiencing behind mm. the scenes. So thank you for sharing that. And I, so you applied to business school. Yes. You chose to go to Dartmouth, which mm -hmm. is amazing, by the way. Um, so tell me a little bit more about your experience at Dartmouth. Key learnings, the social atmosphere. And I want to talk a little bit more about the the relationship of alcohol mm -hmm. in, in that social atmosphere. And we can get to it, but if you could. Yeah. Business school was interesting. So I was, I was I went to Dartmouth, which is in Hanover, New Hampshire, which is very rural. Okay. And so it's a very tight-knit class. It's 280 people in one class. So you just you get to know everybody. It's a very, you can't really do anything else there. You can only be a student. And you are a student all the time. There's, you know, activities, classes, recruiting happening the whole day, every day. Um, so you can't get away from it. And uh, I found it to be, and actually my, so my manager when I was at ID Insight, which was the organization I was at before business school, had told me, because she knew my personality really well, and she said, hey, Omika, you, like, I know you're going to thrive at business school, but I know you're also really introverted, and you're very thoughtful and, and introspective, and business school is not an environment that fosters those qualities. Okay. It okay. is a place where people are self-centered. And not because they're bad people, but it's a place that encourage, be, encourages being self-centered. Yeah. It's a place where people are, I mean, it's a place where you learn how to operate within a capitalistic society yes. and run businesses for shareholders, right? Yeah. So it's, 
I mean, a fundamental underlying value is greed. And I, I mean, people won't agree with that, right? But like, sure. that's what it is, right? And yeah. that's what you are learning to do is be an operator of capital. Yeah. And I think that just doesn't leave a lot of room for, you know, pushing back on social norms or thinking critically about why the world that we live in is the way it is. No room yeah. to talk about inequality or how businesses no, impact real. real people, right? Yeah. So it encourages that. It also encourages a lot of, um, extrovert behavior in terms of being very outspoken in terms of the loudest mouth is the one that gets fed, right? It's yes. the type of environment yes. where people are in huge parties all the time where it's all about networking, whatever that means, um, socializing, just being around people all the time and frankly, just being on 24 seven. And so she told yeah. me, she was like, I know you're very thoughtful. You're very introspective. You like one-on-one -on -one conversations. You are, you have a lot of depth and just know that you're gonna, it's gonna be hard and you're gonna feel like it's out of your comfort zone. And she taught me the idea of junk food socializing, which is basically that yes. you're gonna have so much social interaction, but that social interaction might not fill you up. It's gonna feel like eating a bunch of junk food, right? If you eat a bag of chips, you eat a lot of food, but you don't feel full because you're not oh. nourished. You're not getting the nutrients that you need. And it's the same thing that applies to junk food socializing you're in these yeah. big environments having these surface level conversations and yet you go home and you feel lonely you feel yeah. unfulfilled you feel empty because you are not getting that quality interaction and so um that really resonated with me and it did prove to be true i mean dartmouth again was small it was intimate so i made a lot of great friends and that's not to say that i didn't have a good experience but i did feel a lot of those things coming up yeah. Um, and on the alcohol point, of course, when I got there, I was just shocked by, I wasn't shocked because I should have known this, but I mean, it was a binge drinking environment to the point where I am wow. convinced that people were alcoholics. Yeah. And, like, yeah. and that's not to judge anybody because I'm friends with, <laughs> with a lot of people in my sure, class, right? But sure. it was, it was just encouraging reckless behavior. Um, wow. Okay. People can make their own choices, but yeah. it's just, it wasn't for me. Like you can do that, but it's not for me. And up until then, I had considered myself to be a social drinker. I had drank since college, you know. Yeah. You go to college, you experiment. I had, I'm sure I had my first drink in high school, whatever. Um, but I went there, and I was just so overwhelmed that I basically really cut down on drinking. And then since then, I, I mean, I've pretty much been completely sober now for a while, if not sober curious. Yeah. But it was business school that was the catalyst for, oh, my gosh, I literally don't drink yeah <laughs> because people were drinking so much all the time it's, it's the overexposure and then the react you know every every action has an equal and opposite reaction yeah. so if you're in a space where people are constantly indulging in it it's, it's very it's, it's gluttony really mm -hmm. is what it is is then you kind of step back and you're like, okay I, I don't want anything to do with that right and I think that this is the side of business school that nobody nobody talks about mm -hmm. because people I mean it, it's an it's an institution it's nobody mm -hmm. wants to criticize and I think it's a lovely thing you know my, my dad got his MBA and it was yeah. great for our family and everything so I'm not here to knock it but I mm -hmm do agree that there are a lot of social nuances that nobody brings to light. And I think that's the beauty of bringing people from different cultures into these spaces because yes. it brings in a new perspective because I'm sure in traditional America, mm -hmm. right? No, no, nobody's questioning it when it's just Joe and Brad clinking glasses all day. Seriously, seriously. <laughs> when yeah. Chad and Brad are like, you know, beers yeah. and boys, like no, nobody thinks mm -hmm. about it. But then when you bring women, women of color into those spaces, they, they yeah. bring a new lens and a new perspective. And, I look up to you so much for your journey with, with sobriety. And, and the reason that I look up to it so much is because it's so out of the norm, especially mm. living in New York City. Like I was raised Muslim. I am Muslim. And in and, and my community, I see people not do it, but that's more of a religious, spiritual mm. thing. But for you, it was 
a deep level of soul searching and introspection that mm-hmm. led you to that. And, and I also want to credit you because when I when I moved to New York, I looked up to you, and that also inspired my relationship with spirituality and to maybe change my lifestyle mm-hmm. and habits. And it was there was an exposure to overindulgence, and then you mm-hmm. overindulge, and then you step back, and you're like, wait, what what do I really want for myself mm-hmm. in the long run? And I think one thing that we talk about a lot that also kind of coincides with this theme is intentionality. I think mm-hmm. when you're under the influence. You're not really aware of, of your actions, and I think there's almost a sense of uh, escapism mm-hmm. from, from reality. Yeah. And I personally find through our conversations, one thing that you know really inspired me to change my ways was thinking about, I want my awareness level to be 100% mm-hmm. at all times. I want to be in control. I want to know what's going on. I never want to be in the vulnerable position. And again, this is not to blame anyone, God forbid, that, you know, that, that goes through something in that state of mind. It's just to say that I made a decision. Mm-hmm. And I was inspired by your decision. And I think it's so, I think it's just beautiful how all of that kind of comes together to, to bring us where we are in the present. And I, I people should question it more. And this is also why I started Wholesome Hangouts, by the way. So the ripple effect mm-hmm. has been like, aww, dominant. It's crazy. It's crazy. Domino. I'm so glad. No, so. and I, yeah, no, I love, I love everything that you said. And it's crazy because like when I was sharing about it on social media, one, I felt nervous about it. Right. And then two, the amount of DMs I got. Oh, and the amount of texts and other DMs I got from my business school classmates who would never say this openly to anybody telling me, hey, I really resonated with that. And I was really questioning my relationship with alcohol at Tuck, which is the business school I went to. But I never felt comfortable talking about it because I didn't know how it would be judged or, you know, since I graduated, I've really been thinking about it. And nobody knows that these people feel this way, right? And they've confided in me and I'm just like... Oh my God, like, that's not what I meant, you know, yeah. but I'm so glad that they feel comfortable, but it's like, yeah, you see one people making it, one person making it the norm and suddenly it's like, oh my gosh, I have the permission to be myself. And you know, yeah. if just one person feels that permission, then that's amazing. And around that awareness point, it's so funny because I was telling one of my other sober friends, I was like, he was telling me something about being super aware of heightened, heightened levels, levels of awareness. And I said, I was like, you know, sometimes I just want someone to like, make me a little less aware because now I'm like a little too aware and I'm like I know every, like I have the spidey senses now and I'm just like I feel like a hawk in any social I'm like I know too much like I see too much I don't want to see these things I, 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 oh my god I love that you said that I swear to god I feel like we're cut from the same cloth in our lifetime because everything you say I'm just like oh my god I just spoke my mind like that's literally how my brain operates sometimes I'm like dude somebody turn this thing off like I just need yeah. to turn off like I and thinking too much, <laughs> observing too much, noticing. And the thing that's crazy is it's so, it, it's validating because we're always, I think, right in, in our observations. Mm-hmm. If we were like completely out of left field, yeah. just delusional, like, okay, we need to stop thinking into things. But it's, mm-hmm. personally, every time I think into something, you know, an observation, a social setting, and especially, you know, with, with peak awareness, you see more of it. I'm like, oh, but you end up, you know, there's a, there's yeah. a story later on that confirms kind of what you're noticing. Yeah. And it just kind of feeds into itself. And how do you, how do you turn the brain off? I don't know. And, and know. there's very, there's going to be a very specific niche of people that understand what's coming out of my mouth right now. Yeah. It's going to be the overthinkers and the highly overly analytical people. Um, to, to a fault, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, At least in I my case. You. But um, that's, that's hilarious. Yeah. I, I love that. But I want to, I want to shift gears a little bit. So we talked about COVID and how, how, you know, the beginning of your, of MBA was also mm-hmm. impacted by COVID. But something else kind of really big happened yeah. during COVID. So mm-hmm. let's let's talk about that. Yeah, so during COVID is when my sisters and I started posting on TikTok. Yeah. And it was very serendipitous, not something that we planned. March 2020, we I was in grad I was I was at talk at business school. Uh, my sisters were both still in college at that time. Rishiko was a senior, Ashiko was a junior. 
and we all went home uh, at our parents' new house in March of 2020. Of course, we thought we were going to be home for two weeks, as everybody did. (laughs) And we were literally so bored, out of our minds, of course. And and I had never heard of TikTok before, because I'm maybe a little, I'm not, and she was just like we were bored so she was like oh my god guys like let's make a tiktok dance and it was just something that was trending we made this dance if you go back and scroll to our first tiktok it was terrible <laughs> it was like we filmed it in 0.5 speed or something and then sped it up like it was so bad because we couldn't do the dance fast enough like it was so dumb um we were like wearing these stupid hats it was like really really dumb um so we did that, and we were just bored, but then we started posting, then we started doing, like, little individual dances, and yeah. then suddenly we started doing trends with uh, an Indian twist, or, like, a Gujarati uh, folk yeah. dance twist. And then suddenly, those videos just started to go viral. Right. And it was so random, but it was within a couple weeks, basically, of us starting to post. And again, it was with no plan at all, started doing this, and, yeah, I mean, by May of 2020, I want to say it was, what, two months in-ish, um, we started to just, we had a bigger platform. We were doing these virtual performances. I think we did our first brand collab at that time. Wow. Somebody reached out to manage us. So just things went crazy fast, yeah. uh, during that time. And yeah, I mean, it was wild. It was absolutely life altering, brought me very right. close to my family. It's still something that I'm trying to process three, almost four years later, which is so crazy to think about. It's been that long, right? uh, time, but time yeah, I mean, absolutely life altering and uh, something that nobody could have predicted. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I think it's what, what I like is the duality of it, right? It's like you are this like career oriented, incredible force, right, to be reckoned with. And also, you dabble with social media and content creation, and I love that you you do it all. You do it all. And I want to understand though, what. How has your relationship with social media evolved since then? Mm-hmm. And what would you say it is in the present? And I, I don't want to just talk about the good. I want to talk about the bad, mm-hmm. the ugly, the moments it eats away at you or, or becomes a source of anxiety. I want to I want to yeah. go through that. There are so many pros to it. I mean, I feel so grateful, of course, that I was able to dance more, that I've been able to have this creative yeah. outlet to get closer to my sisters. I really think that's the biggest part for me. For us, it was always, you know, no matter what happens, like family first. And our mom always reminded us of that too. She was like, cause she could see, you know, we would get into little riffs and arguments, of course. We yeah. were spending all this time together. And she was like, okay, but remember, like you guys are sisters first, right? No matter oh. what you, you know, eventually we <laughs> incorporated into a business and everything. And that's scary. It's scary to do that with family. And of course I've met amazing people through it all, you know, and gotten like crazy cool opportunities. And again, would not trade it for the world. That being said, I mean, there is so much to unpack in terms of, I wouldn't say the negative, but just things to question, right? Right. Um, I think one big thing, and again, I'm not saying that I'm any sort of big celebrity or big influence or anything. There are people who have way bigger platforms. That being said, I still feel like I have experienced some of the things that, you know, people with platforms experience. Yeah, Um, of course. Including, I think the biggest thing is people making a lot of, assumptions, mm-hmm. not seeing you as a whole person, um, only knowing you from a certain period of time onwards, making assumptions based on a 15 second clip that they see of you. And that's just yeah. really hard. And, you know, of course, ultimately, as long as you know your intention and and the heart behind it, then that shouldn't matter. I think at the same time, unfortunately, sometimes those two things get muddled, right? So even if you think you have the best intention in mind, but you're doing something and it's giving you that validation, it's giving mm-hmm. you the likes, it's giving you that dopamine hit, it does become hard to detangle those things from yes. one another, right? Because you're like, oh, this feels good. I'm going to do more of it. But, oh, yeah. do I want to be doing it? Or am I now trying to morph myself into something that people are going to like? 
And then that is completely unsustainable because what people like is fickle. It changes all the time. You cannot base your validation or your worth based on what other people want to see of you, right? So, you know, people will come up to me and say, hey, I expected you to react differently because I admire you or I really look up to you. And I want to be able to just say, okay, you can admire someone and look up to them, but that doesn't mean that they're going to agree with everything that you think or believe in. Like that, all that is is that they have created a picture of me in their head. And if I don't tick off all of those boxes or if I don't fit that perfect image or narrative, then they don't like me anymore, right? And I'm like, it kind of goes both ways. And I think it's really tricky. I think it's also really tricky in the South Asian space where I've never felt this immense pressure as I do now sometimes to feel like, I have to represent all South Asians everywhere. Like, you know what I mean? Sure. Just like this immense weight. And of course it's a privilege and I, you know, want to be a role model in whatever way I can, but ultimately I cannot represent everybody, you right? Like, and you cannot once. be everything. Yeah. And that's just really hard to take on that burden or, um, you know, it's a responsibility. It's, it's a blessing privilege in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but it's often, it often feels like, oh, maybe I'm disappointing you or I, I can't be my full self anymore because I'm put into this box in some way. So there's a lot more to it. I'm happy to dive into any of it, but Anyway, those were some of my initial, <laughs> initial No, no, I mean, I think that covers the most important points is, I mean, it, it's a positive and a negative relationship, mm-hmm. and I think that's part of what keeps all of us hooked onto it. It's like mm-hmm. the stream of, of validation, and it, it's not just validation, it's, it's opportunity, it's, it's events, mm-hmm. it's meeting people, it's, it's income. I know there was mm-hmm. the Business Insider article recently released talking about how much you guys have been able to make from this, and it, that's, it's, those are meaningful figures that, that can be life-changing if, like, saved and invested properly and all that, mm-hmm. so I, I completely understand the difficulty of balancing that nuanced relationship mm-hmm. and I actually one thing I really appreciate is, is being close to you is, is seeing kind of the way that it impacts you because it also helps guide me on my journey obviously I'm like very 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 small on TikTok and Instagram comparatively but I still get a little bit of a front seat to understand how it can really impact someone and I think the, the craziest moment for me was I think there was a few months ago you're opening up to me about about the situation that, that really took a toll on you and, and I felt every word of what you were saying and I was like you poor thing like I just want to like take this bad thing away but I understand it's not all bad but then you know a few months later more recently I had a much smaller scale much smaller scale, like similar experience where I completely felt mind controlled by by, the, by my social media feedback and I, I literally didn't know up from down I was like sitting in the middle of the night and sobbing because I was like I don't I feel like I'm letting people down the thing is I don't care if people tell me that that I'm, that I'm ugly or that I talk too much or don't talk enough I, I don't care what people say but it's when I feel like there's people that were looking up mm. to me that I disappointed by not acting mm. in a certain way. Mm. That hurts. How do you how do you balance? And I love your approach to, to health and, and wellness and meditation. And it's really taking time away for yourself. I love I know you you've told me offline too about like retreats that you go mm. on and, and solo travel. And I think that that's the best way to really get back in touch with yourself and, and figure out what it is that makes you tick. I think we all need to refresh and recalibrate every once in a while. Mm-hmm. I think that's the best way to do it is, you know, be thankful for the privilege that social media has, has given some of us in this world, but also recognize it's not, it, it's, you know, not served on a golden platter and, and not, <laughs> not all that glitter is gold. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, there's just so much there and I, I feel everything that you're saying around, yeah, being the disappointment or yeah. anything like that. And I think what I've realized is what I really had to do after, you know, the episode that I, you were talking about that I had in the middle of this year, like I think my life really changed after that, which is kind of crazy now to think about it, you know, five, six yeah. months later without getting into details. But I think I, what that whole, that situation taught me around and uh, what that was, was again, being 
feeling like I was being disappointing to people yes. or um, feeling controlled by people, right? Um, I realized that I really needed to take a step back and reevaluate my values and priorities and yes. really define what my intentions are. And as long as I know that I am coming from a good place where I have thought things through and I'm coming at it from a place of good intention, yeah. then I th that's all that matters. And of course, be open to feedback, be open to sure. constructive criticism, sure. always be learning, absolutely. But I really had to redefine those values and that's why I started to really work on myself on other goals on really just thinking about longer term goals that I wanted to work on yeah. to get away from that constant you know not even 24 hour cycle literally like 10 minute cycle of likes and comments <laughs> right yeah. I was like I really just want to work on some other goals that I have uh and and get that delayed dopamine or really just do things that I know yeah. I can be proud of and that things that nobody can take away from me yes absolutely and I think that's also I love that you bring that up because that's also what kind of inspired this show is I realized that my relationship with social media as you know as a platform on TikTok was was one thing but it wasn't giving me everything that I wanted and it got to there are certain points like we just talked about where it was giving me more bad than good mm -hmm. in that process is you know where I realized that I need to do this and that's mm -hmm. part of why we're here and I, I love that I, I love that you shared that mm -hmm. really quickly I want to switch gears I know we talked about a lot of familial relationships mm -hmm. but I want to talk a little bit more about romantic relationships and, and the reason I bring it up is not to be nosy I think it's important for us to holistically understand who a person is and I think a lot of that comes from the way they look at love and, and my personal belief is that love is the most vulnerable emotion that we can feel mm -hmm. and being in love I think brings out this different side to people that nobody else the rest of the world doesn't see it brings up the insecurities the traumas the anxieties the inner mm -hmm. healing that hasn't been done yet so with all of that said, <laughs> I, I'm curious, what's been your philosophy in a general sense mm -hmm. on love growing up versus now? How has it evolved? Mm. I mean, growing up, I don't think I questioned it much. I felt very much like I would have some sort of traditional relationship or it wasn't really something that I thought about. One, because I wasn't encouraged to date. <laughs> that wasn't right, something right. that I did in high school, frankly. Um, I had my first boyfriend in college and he was not Indian. And so uh, that was a, a mess. And my and then because I was moving around so much after college, I was single for that entire time because yeah. uh, I was transferring cities all the time. I would go on dates with people that I kind of knew that I wasn't really looking for anything long-term at that point unless something really worked out because I was just all over the place. I knew that I wanted to go to grad school. I just, I didn't really right. want anything tying me down. So I was super self-focused doing a lot of, you know, solo travel and just being on my own. Um, and then I started more seriously dating when I went to business school and, um, and just meeting people at school and whatnot, uh, and then didn't really uh, get into anything super serious or sure. long term. But then after that, I was kind of like, okay, maybe I'm ready to you know look for something more serious. And so then I moved to Boston after school and started going on apps and whatnot, and um, was was kind of dating around, but nothing was really sticking. Sure. I wasn't really finding anyone that I you know really clicked with, and then. Moved back to New York last spring and um, decided at that point actually to completely delete my dating apps because I was like, yeah, I oh, just wow. want to be self-focused again. I'm moving back to New York after 11 years for the first time. Yeah. And I Huge. literally just want to establish a life here. I want to make new friends. I want to get involved in different activities. That's what I always do a lot of extracurriculars <laughs> outside <laughs> of work. Um, so I was just looking forward to doing that. So I was completely not in, in a state to date. I've always been of yeah. the mindset of being, you know, uh, just like really focusing on myself, being happy on my own. I think that comes with that oldest daughter independence, you know, narrative right. as well. Um, and then crazy enough when I, 
it sounds so cliche, so, so cliche. When I wasn't looking for anything last year, I wasn't on any apps or anything, was when I met my partner, my current yeah. partner, who I've now been with for a year. That's so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it just was, yeah, it was wild timing because it was literally not something that I was looking for. And what I love is when I met you, you were this, like, super, I mean, you're still very happy, obviously. You're the super happy, independent, <laughs> this happy, independent, free-spirited woman. Yeah. And you still are all of those things, but I got to witness you evolve in another facet. And I got to see you fall in love. Or I got to cheer Aww. you on. Obviously, I wasn't there the moment it happened. That'd be weird. <laughs> but I got to hear about it live. And I was like, oh, there's a guy. Okay, wow. And it, it was, it's so, I think, inspiring. Because I see a lot of myself in you. And I literally feel like you're me in the future, just a few years down the road. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like we have so much in common. And one thing that scares the living heck out of me is I'm like, am I going to find someone that makes me happy? And I'm like, am I ever going to someone? I want to. I say that I want to find a husband. And obviously, like, I want to get married. And maybe it's part of, you know, me being Muslim. We love to get married early and all that. Like, everybody knows that. So I'm like, you know, I want to find my husband and, and lock it down and start the whole thing. But sometimes I get so scared because I feel like there's this this fear of mine that when I find someone, I won't be able to fulfill my passions in life mm -hmm. anymore. And that, you know, that's much to unpack and that could be a whole other mm -hmm. show, really. The ultimate answer is like, you know, leave it up to the God, universe, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and let it be and it, it'll come to you naturally. And I think you're a living example of that is you spent your 20s living out your dreams and, and chasing, you know, chasing the world, like doing these things that, that made you happy deep down. And your person just came to you when the time mm -hmm. was right. and. You, I mean, you guys are so adorable, and I love how healthy your bond is. I think that's something that I really look up to is when I ask you about your relationship, I'm like, this just sounds healthy. It just sounds adult. It sounds adult and it sounds healthy. I say that every single time. Like, that is so cool. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, it's really good to know that you can have that. It's amazing. It's, it's just so happy, and I'm excited to see what the future holds for you, too. It's incredible. Aw, thank you. <laughs> no, I was literally just talking to, as I'm doing my, um, my life coaching, practice too. I had one of my clients yeah. today who um, is in their mid-30s and, and was worried about, you know, finding a partner and settling down and everything. And we talked about the same thing around how people that we do know who maybe got married earlier on, again, this is not to bring negativity right. no, in, no, but no, we're, no. you know, but this person was telling me like, yeah, a lot of my friends are unfortunately ending their marriages in their mid-30s, right? Yeah. Not That's not something that we wish on anybody, of but course. it's just these timelines are completely self-inflicted, yeah. and there are stories that are recycled. Of course, they're, you know, biological clock is a real thing for women. I don't want to discount that, yeah. um, but there's so much more to it, and there's no reason to rush also. I agree, and I think I have a lot to learn from that. I, I love I love hearing that perspective. But anyways, I, you, you mentioned life coaching, so as we, you know, as we, as we finish up, I want to talk about the future and what your plans are. Um, I, I know that you're balancing all these worlds, you know, your family, uh, the content creation, the job, the coaching, the life partnership. So where, where do you <laughs> see all of this taking you? What, what's, what does the future hold for you as far as you can see? I think for me, what I'm really focusing on right now is creating a life where I feel free, I feel fulfilled, I feel like I'm making an impact in some way, and that can take so many different forms. How do you feel freedom day to day? How do you feel calmness day to day because ultimately yeah. our lives are lived in the day to day right really deconstructing yeah. all of these things as i am turning i'm turning 30 in a few weeks and as i enter this new decade it's a lot of around again deconstructing those tales that i've told yeah. myself around how things need to be right ultimately i want to just be working with people more one-on-one -on -one in group settings yeah. to to work on similarly on those limiting beliefs on working with people to reach their full potential as well and and decondition the mind that's something that i'm yeah. really passionate about is you know getting getting control over our minds because then we can really accomplish yeah. a lot of different things
Yeah, no, I, I love every single part of that. And I'm so excited to yeah. see what happens in your future. And yes. I'm so excited to stay along for the journey. I just, I can't oh. wait. I feel like this is only the beginning of the great things that you're going to do in this life. We have so much time on this earth. Thank, thank God, you know, no, no, uh, no jinxing or anything, but I think you have a lot of great things that you're going to do. So thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing oh a piece God, of it. Thank you for having me. Brad. And that wraps up our first full episode. Thank you all so much for tuning in and coming along with me on this journey. Stay tuned for more episodes. You may see some more familiar faces, but that's all for now. So signing off your host.